Good morning to each one. It is so good to be here, and we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to worship God today. I know we have several who are visiting with us, and we want you to know that uh, we're very happy to have you, that you are welcome. And uh, if there's something that we can do to help or to serve you in some way, please don't hesitate to let us know. You get out of something what you put into it. I don't know how many times I have heard that short proverb throughout my life. Too many to count, I'm sure. I can remember my dad saying that to me many times as I was growing up, whether we were talking about baseball or school or some other area. You get out of something what you put into it. The idea, of course, is that if we don't invest much effort or energy into something, then we can't expect to get much out of it. We can't expect the harvest or the fruit that it's produced to be very much at all. You know, that principle applies in a number of areas throughout our life. It applies in some sort of project that we might set out to do, like maybe restoring an old truck or remodeling a home. If we want the end result to be pristine and to be beautiful and to be full of value and full of character, then that's going to involve us putting some great effort into making that happen. That applies to our relationships, whether we're talking about a marriage, whether we're talking about a relationship with a friend or with a co-worker. Generally speaking, the relationships that we have, they will be whatever we make them. And however much effort we put into making those relationships what they need to be will produce, uh, well, they will rather be what, uh, according to the effort we put into them. It can apply to our work, our profession, our job. If we want our profession to be rewarding, if we want what we do every day to have some sort of meaning and to bring us some sort of sense of contentment and fulfillment in, in life, then to a large degree, that's going, to, that's going to depend upon how much effort or energy we're willing to dedicate to it. But it also has a spiritual application as well. You see, we can't expect to know much about the Bible if we don't ever bother to open it up and to learn from it. We can't expect our faith to grow stronger or to mature spiritually if we're not willing to worship God, and if we're not willing to study his word, and if we're not willing to engage in spiritual activity, because you get out of something what you put into it. But this is not only a biblical principle in application. The Bible actually has a name for this principle, and the name of that principle is the law of sowing and reaping. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, what Dan read for us just a moment ago, and you know that in this context, the law of sowing and reaping is stated explicitly. Interestingly enough, it is stated in a context that has to do with generosity. When Paul says in verse 6, let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches, he is talking about material things. He's talking about seeing to meet the material needs of the teacher. But then, of course, as he goes on through verse number 10, he expands upon this law of sowing and reaping, and he 
makes it clear to us that the law of sowing and reaping has a widespread application to basically every area of our life. I want us to think this morning about the law of sowing and reaping. And what I want us to see is that as we turn our attention to the whole of Scripture and we study passages from both the Old and the New Testament, that the law of sowing and reaping has attached to it a number of principles. And when we look at each one of these principles individually, then they will help us to appreciate in a greater way the law of sowing and reaping uh, to a greater degree. So let's spend some time talking about those seven principles this morning. Seven points is a lot of points to have in a lesson, so we're not going to be able to spend just a great deal of time looking at any one of them, but hopefully we'll be able to to deal with them well enough that we have some appreciation for each one. Let's talk, first of all, about sowing. Sowing. When we think about the law of sowing and reaping, the vocabulary of of that law, sowing and reaping, of course, brings to mind agriculture. And we recognize that the world of the Bible was an agricultural world. And for people to be able to eat, for people to be able to live, that required that they put some effort into planting, that they put some effort into sowing and reaping. And so sowing has to do with sowing seed. And it emphasizes, first and foremost, I think, the principle of work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, uh, if a man is not willing to work, then a man should not eat. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse number 11, he says that we are to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Solomon said in Proverbs 13 verse 4, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. That might seem like one of those uh, truths that is self-evident, but I think it's worth stating anyway, and that is that you must sow before you can reap. In a physical sense, you have to work in order to make a living. With no work comes no paycheck. If you want a home to be nice, then you're going to have to put in the work to build it or to remodel it. If you, like we talked about before, want a job to be rewarding or a relationship to be rewarding, then you're going to have to sow. You're going to have to plant the seed. You're going to have to prepare the soil. You're going to have to see that the seed has everything that it needs in order to grow and to produce fruit. In a spiritual sense, you have to put your hand to the plow before you can enjoy the fruit of eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 11, Paul says, He who plows should plow and hope, and he who threshes should be a partaker of this hope. The principle of sowing tells me that if I'm ever going to enjoy fruit of any labor at all, there first has to be labor. Again, a point that may seem to be self-evident, but in a culture like our own is something that probably should not go without being said. So there's sowing, and then, of course, there's reaping. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
Sowing and reaping go together. And the reason is because what the Bible teaches is that we have the right to enjoy the fruit of labor. We have the right to enjoy the fruit of hard work. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 says, If a man is not willing to work, then he shouldn't eat. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4 says, The lazy man will not plow because of winter, and so he will beg during the harvest, and he will have nothing. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the many ways in which the Bible deals with things like socialism. Because what the Bible tells us is that it is absolutely right if a person is willing to work, if a person is willing to labor, if a person is willing to sow, then it is right for the sower to reap the benefits of his sowing. But if a person is not willing to work and labor, if they're not willing to sow, it is not right for that person to reap the benefits of the labor of the one who is willing to sow. But here's something else that's interesting about the law of sowing and reaping and how they go together, and that is this, that often uh, not only is it the case that uh, what we reap depends on what we sow, but it's also sometimes true that we may reap more than we sow. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse number 8, the Proverbs writer says that the righteous are delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. In Job 4, in verse 8, Job said, Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble shall reap the same. But then in addition to that, there is this principle that goes along with sowing and reaping, and it is the principle of quantity. And again, this principle teaches us not only that that what we reap depends on what we sow. You sow righteousness, you reap righteousness. If you sow wickedness, you reap wickedness. But that the quantity of what we reap may far surpass what we may imagine. Look in your Bibles, for example, at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You may recognize this context. It is a context that has to do with giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul makes this statement in in verse number 6, as it pertains to the law of sowing and reaping. He says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Notice the connection. A sparing sower is a sparing reaper, and a bountiful sower is a bountiful reaper. But skip down to verse 10 and verse number 11. He says in verse 10, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply, and notice this, multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes uh, thanksgiving through us to God. You see, if I plant a garden in my backyard and I dig a hole and I plant within that hole a small handful of squash seed, I know that when that squash plant grows to maturity, it will ultimately produce more squash in quantity than the amount of seed that I've actually put in the ground in order to grow the plant. It's the principle of quantity. Now, this applies in a spiritual way in in both directions. It is true that sometimes we may reap more evil than we sow. Like in Hosea chapter 8 and verse number 7 where the Bible says to Israel, you've sown to the wind but you will reap the whirlwind. Or if you want a case study, you can simply study the life of David. 
David sinned with Bathsheba, and he sinned in murdering Uriah in order to cover that sin up. But if you follow the uh, life of David from that point forward, what you will find is that he suffered one uh, tragic consequence after another because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. But then it also applies in the sense of doing what is good. If you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 36 through 38, for example, you'll notice that Jesus says, If you give, it will be given back to you, shaken down, pressed together, and in greater measure or to a greater degree. So the law of sowing and reaping includes this principle of quantity. We have to sow before we can reap. What we reap depends upon what we sow, but often we will reap more than we sow. We might reap more evil than the evil that we sow, or we might reap more good than the good that we sow. But the principle of quantity tells us that we often reap more than we sow. Here's another principle to go along with it. The principle of kind. The principle of kind Look in your Old Testaments with me to a couple of passages that at the outset might seem to be a little odd. Leviticus chapter 19 is the first one. I want you to read with me Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 19. And then we'll look at a passage in Deuteronomy that goes along with it. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 19, God told the children of Israel, You shall, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment mixed with linen and wool come upon you. Now the question is, of course, why would God command them in this fashion? Why would he tell them that they could not uh, mix their livestock, the breeds of livestock, that they couldn't mix their seed in the field, that they couldn't mix the... um, uh, cloth in their, in their garments. Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 for a moment and notice a commentary and an elaboration on it. Deuteronomy 22, verse 9 through 11. Listen to what this passage says. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 to 11. He says this, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard, listen to this, be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment or different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of your clothing with which you cover yourself. I want you to pay close attention to the end of verse number nine. What does he say? Lest, he says, the yield of the seed which you've sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You see, under the law of Moses, God placed restrictions on the mixing of certain things. And notice that we're talking, at least to some degree, about sowing and reaping here because this has to do, at least in part, with the seed that is sown, with the crops that are sown, and with the fruit that comes from it. Now, the question is, why would God do it? Why would he command in this way? Let me suggest two things. Number one, because there's the principle of distinction. Remember that as we study through the Pentateuch, and particularly the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that we see several principles that have to do with with holiness or with separation or with distinction. 
And so the laws given to Israel, in part, were given in order to keep the Israelites and their agriculture distinct from that of the pagans and those who were around them. Their practices and their produce, their sowing and reaping, were to be different. But then here's a second. Another reason would perhaps be the thought of consistency. You see, we have to be consistent in the fruit that we produce, but in order to do so, we have to be consistent in the seed that we sow. Now, the New Testament will elaborate on that in a little bit clearer of a fashion. For example, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, when we're talking about being consistent in the fruit that is produced, and that fruit is dependent upon the seed that is sown, Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 24, you cannot serve both God and mammon, for either you'll hate the one and despise the other, or you will uh, turn away from the one and cling to the other. So there has to be consistency there. You have to choose one of the two. You can't mix. You can't be both worldly and spiritual at the same time. How about James chapter 3, verses 10 to 12? James would say this. He asked a question, or, or made the point rather, out of the same mouth proceeds both blessing and cursing. And then he says, these things ought not to be so. So when we think about the law of kind in the Old Testament as it pertains to sowing and reaping, the application is distinction and consistency. The Israelites had this responsibility to not mix certain of their, of their livestock, certain of their seeds, certain of their cloths. And this was partly to keep them distinct from the nations around them, but it was also to remind them of the importance of being consistent in their faithfulness to God. So for us, it reminds us of holiness and the same requirement that we have to be uh, distinct from the world in which we live, but also to be consistent. We can't have blessing and cursing coming from the same mouth. We can't have good fruit and bad fruit being produced from the same tree. But the fruit that is produced is dependent upon the seed that is sown. And so if we want only good fruit to be sown within our life, then we're going to have to make sure that we're sowing only good seed. And then the opposite is true as well. Here's another principle that is attached to the law of sowing and reaping. It's the principle of the Sabbath year. In Leviticus chapter 25, we don't have the time to read all of this, but write it down and go read it this afternoon. If you'll read through that chapter, you'll read about this law that God had that said that every seven years the land was to lay and rest, that it was to be a Sabbath unto the Lord, a Sabbath rest for the land, And then every 49 years, there was to be what was called the year of Jubilee. And and in this year of Jubilee, a number of things would happen. And uh, one of those things would be that those who were enslaved would be freed, and uh, things would be restored, and restitution would be made, and so on and so forth. Now, what was the reason for the year of Jubilee? What was the reason for the Sabbath rest of the land? It was in order to remind the children of Israel that God is the owner. You see, every year when they would go out and sow their seed and then the harvest time would come and they would reap their crops, those crops were to them like paychecks to us. That was how they lived. That was how they were able to manage in their economy and so on and so forth. They they made their living off of the harvest. 
And so this sabbatical year, this year of jubilee that would come every 49 years was in part to remind them that when you go out to your field and you, you reap the harvest of grain, or you reap the corn, or you reap whatever the vegetable or whatever the, the uh, crop may be, remember that it's not actually you that did that. Well, it's true, you sowed the seed and you labored over it and made it happen. But what's the principle that the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in a spiritual way? We sow, we water, who gives the increase? It's God. So every seven and every 49 years, the children of Israel were to be reminded that they weren't to focus on the sowing and reaping of material things, even material needs, to the point of neglecting to glorify God. They weren't to focus so much on what they needed for their living that they forgot who it was that gave them their living in the first place. They were to be reminded that God is the owner of everything. Here's another principle. The principle of generosity. The principle of generosity. Back to the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 10, here's the command to the children of Israel. Leviticus 19.10 says, And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse number 19, the scripture says, When you reap your harvest, Deuteronomy 24.19, in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. What are these two passages teaching the children of Israel? They're teaching them, teaching them the importance of being generous. You see, the law, of Moses, the law of Moses commanded that the children of Israel, when they went out to reap the harvest, when they went out to reap the fruit of what they had sown that God had given them, that they were expected to leave some things behind for the poor. Now, from a New Testament standpoint, go back to our, our context that we began with, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. It's a context, again, in which we see the law of sowing and reaping mentioned explicitly, but it is a context that has to do with generosity. You see, when it comes to what we give, when it comes to uh, the living that God gives us, we have to remember this principle of generosity that is attached to the law of sowing and reaping. James chapter 1 and verse 27, the Bible tells us that, that pure religion and undefiled before God and the fatherless is, uh, before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world and to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. The word visit doesn't mean to stop by and say hello. The word visit means literally to see to their needs. He's talking about being sacrificial and about being generous. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a passage, a chapter which deals with our giving is really a chapter that's all about generosity. Because if you read the first few verses, the Apostle Paul reminds the brethren there about the need that the saints in Jerusalem had because of famine. They were in need of basic material necessities. 
And the church at Corinth had promised that they were going to participate in an offering, uh, participate in a collection that was taken up in order to meet those needs, but they hadn't yet to that point done that. And so God, or Paul rather, tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, what we read just a little while ago, that whoever, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly, but if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. The idea of bountifully is connected to being generous. He's calling on them to be generous in what God has given them so that they might be able to help those who have, in, who have need. You see, the law of generosity or the principle of generosity reminds us that, remember, God has given us everything that we have, and so we ought to use what God has given us in a way that is generous and in a way that is compassionate. Here's our last principle, and then we'll make some further application. It's the principle of the first fruits. If you go in your Old Testament and you read Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 11... Or Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. You will find this principle of the first fruits in the law of Moses. And the principle is almost self-explanatory. You see, when the harvest time came, the first fruits were exactly what it sounds like. They were the first of the crop and they were the best. And the law of Moses commanded that the first fruits, they were to be given voluntarily they were to be given willingly and gladly as a sacrifice and as an offering to God. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The children of Israel as they went at harvest time and they reaped what had been sown What the law of Moses told them was that when you bring this before God, you don't bring the seconds or the thirds. You don't bring the leftovers. You bring the first and you bring the best. That principle, of course, applies to us as well in so many ways. As it pertains to what we give to God, our giving to God, whether it be of our time or effort or energy of our life or even of our our own living, our giving is not supposed to be from the leftovers. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1 and 2? The Apostle Paul commanded, as he talked about our first day of the week contribution, he made this statement. He said that each man is to lay by in store as he has prospered. You see, under the Old Testament law, the children of Israel were under a tithing system in which they were to give 10%, but really it ended up being more when you told it all together. We don't give tithes today. The New Testament does not command tithing. The New Testament commands a free will offering, going back to our previous principle of generosity. But that free will offering is to be based on how God has prospered us. And so as we consider the living that God blesses us with, as we consider this principle in, say, our monthly budgets... We ought to make sure that we're setting aside for God in a cheerful way. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, because God loves a cheerful giver. giver. Even though that may imply or may involve sacrifice. Remember David said in 2 Samuel uh, 24 verse 24, I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. 
But that's the principle of the first fruits, giving God the first fruit in whatever way and in every age and dispensation always involves a degree or a level of sacrifice because we take it and we give it to God and we use it to his glory and to his service. Now, how do we wrap all these principles together and make application? Well, these principles find application in everything that God has entrusted to us in this life. You see, everything that we have actually really is not our own at all. Our time, our health, our families, our money, all of these things actually belong to God. Remember, that's the principle of the, uh, the, principle of the Sabbath year in the Old Testament law, that we're reminded that everything that we have belongs to God. And 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1 says that we're stewards of these things and that stewards are to be found faithful. You see, a steward is simply a manager. A steward takes something that doesn't actually belong to him and uses it in a way that is responsible and that glorifies the one who is the true owner. So we have to rid ourselves of the thinking that this part belongs to me and that part belongs to God because in reality, every part belongs to God and God has only given it to us in order to use to his glory. As it pertains to the work of the kingdom, if we hope to have a good harvest, then we have to do the work to sow because you can't reap if you don't sow. We have to give him our best, and we have to remember that if we sow bountifully, then we will reap bountifully, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 6. As it pertains to our giving, we ought to be generous, and we ought to be compassionate, and we ought to use the material blessings that God has given us in a way that glorifies him and helps to carry out his will. Remember again the law of the Sabbath the law of the Sabbath year was to remind the people that everything belonged to God and that they needed to be careful that they didn't get so caught up in making and in earning a living that they forgot to glorify the one who gave them the living in the first place. We have people in the first century like Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 who sold in order to give. But in the 21st century, people tend to buy so that they can't give. And the reason is because we lose our perspective. Our perspective is on the things that are in this world that we say that we need but we really want instead of thinking about what's truly important, instead of thinking about the necessities of life and the glorifying of God and the work of his kingdom. We need to be sensitive to others. Proverbs 22 and verse 9, the Bible says, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives his bread to the, to the poor. We need to be sensitive to the needs of the kingdom. We all have financial needs that have to be met in order to live, but the church has financial needs as, as well. And as the economy shifts and changes and our needs personally shift and change, so too the church's needs shift and change along with it. And isn't this the reason why Paul commanded the Lord's Day contribution? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, there was a need that, that must be met. The need was that there were saints in Jerusalem who were struggling and they needed help. And so in order to meet that need, the Apostle Paul commanded the Lord's Day contribution. And that principle applies to us in the same sense. 
The church always has needs that need to be met. And so God commands us as part of our worship to give of our means so that those needs can be met. But we give of those means, we help to meet those needs with the attitude that is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Remembering that if we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly, but if we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully, and that God loves a purposeful and a cheerful giver. We're to give of our first fruits. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 9. Often we get it backwards. We sit down and we make out our budget and we fill in all the categories first and then with whatever's left, we give to the Lord. But that's backwards. The principle of the first fruit tells me that whatever prosperity I may have is given by God and so he deserves the first and he deserves the best. I need to remember Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over and will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So now the question for me is this. What am I sowing? What kind of seed am I sowing? What kind of effort am I giving to the act of sowing seed? What am I reaping? What does the fruit look like that I'm seeing in my life? How am I using the blessings that God has given me to his glory? Do I really believe what the Bible says about sowing and reaping and about these principles of putting God first and using everything he's given me me to his glory and then in turn him blessing me with what I need and, and even more? Are we remembering that we reap what we sow and sometimes more? That we ought to be consistent in the kind of fruit that we produce, that God has given us everything, and that we ought to be generous and sacrificial and give to God the first and the best. How do we do that? Well, we can start by giving God our very lives. You know that the Bible describes the Christian life as a life of total sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as it pertains to giving of the first fruits, uh, as it pertains to the law of sowing and reaping, I can't hope to reap real, I can't hope to reap a, a great harvest of blessing from God if I'm not willing to first give God what he deserves. And what he deserves first and foremost is everything that, that I have to give him. He deserves my dedication. He deserves my heart. He deserves my mind. He deserves my service. And so if if I'm going to, to live truly consistent with the principles of sowing and reaping, it begins by giving him my life. Are you a Christian this morning? If not, what are you waiting for? Give your life to the Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to repent of your sins? Confess your faith. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the plan that God has laid out in his word. That's how a person becomes a Christian. And that's God's plan for everybody, regardless of who they may be. Are you a Christian this morning? But as you think about these principles of sowing and reaping, it occurs to you that you've not been really fulfilling them. You've not been honoring them in your life. Make some changes. And if we can help you and encourage you in some way to do it, then we invite you to come forward and let that be known as we stand and sing the invitation song.